I'm glad that you're here, and I am grateful to be where we are in the Gospel of John. I want to start with something that you might think is not true, but it is true, and it just takes me about 30 seconds to demonstrate it as such. The statement is this, everyone is a theologian. Everyone's a theologian. And what I mean by the statement, everyone is a theologian, is that everybody has an opinion about God. Well, I don't think God exists, see? Right? Like you've already decided something. And so a theologian being one who speaks about God, one who forms words, thoughts, and ideas about God, whether you view there being many gods or a couple of like key gods or one god or no god, whatever that is, somebody were asking the question, what do you think about God? Somebody, everybody has a response. So, right? You've all been to the Genesis Community Church School of Theology. You're all graduates now, ready to take on the world. This is your commencement speech. Ready? John 14 addresses issues about God, but roots the issues about God in both Jesus' interaction with the disciples, Jesus' instruction about who he is, and his relationship with the Father, And it answers what I think is a fundamental question, at least for every theist, and if not for every theist, for every body. The core question is, how do I know I'm doing the right thing? How do I know I'm doing the right thing? That's a core question I think that everybody has. Like, I I just need to know I'm doing okay. And we use that as kind of a, a gauge, and we use that in our relationships with friends. Like, hey, are we good? Are we good? Are things okay in your, in your marriage? Like, are we okay? Have I done something? Or We always want to know, like, how, how do I know if I'm doing okay? If we just take that up a level, you go, how do I know who God is? How do I know who God is? How do I know if who God is is who God is? Like, all these questions that we start to ask regarding God himself So that fundamental question of, we all want to know what's out there. Anybody a fan of the X-Files from back in the day? I was, right? The truth is out there, right? You're trying to get to figure it out. I don't care if you weren't, right? Like, hey, that's your loss, man. Like, like if you you missed it, we can't can't solve every problem here at church. We're going to solve the most fundamental. Uh, X-Files church is down the road, but first church of X-Files, so... Everyone wants to know. We stumble around at times. and You might even in your salvation testimony where you talk about with people about how the Lord changed your heart, changed your life. There's this part where maybe there was a, a searching or a seeking or a looking. And then there was this moment. And you're like, oh, this is, this is what it means that, that God loves me. This is how his love is shown. This is how it is demonstrated. We get all of those kind of core, that really just fundamental questions that humans ask today. In John chapter 14. And what we get to, get to see is that Jesus says with clarity a few things about our access, our understanding, and our ability to live for God. Those are really access, understanding, and ability are kind of those three main ideas all provided by Jesus. Access, understanding, and ability. Now, with that in mind, there are a couple of questions that, that you could ask to anybody. And that first kind of overarching idea is like, help, help me find God. 
Help me find God. We don't really talk about people who are searching anymore, people who are longing to know who God is. Like we kind of, kind of, in a secular world, we kind of push that aside and go, well, that's like a secondary thing. That's not as big of a concern. We have other things that we're concerned about. But fundamentally, people still, they want to know. I think anybody who's honest would go, well, if there is a God, I'd want to know if that God is, how to find that God, if there is. Even if you don't believe there's a God. Like, well, I'd like, I'd like to know if there's God. If there's a God, I want to know. That's really one of the first things that we see in this interaction. So that question of help me find God is answered by Jesus in these first seven verses. That Jesus provides our access to his heavenly Father. Our access to his heavenly Father. Remember, he's been speaking about how <clears throat> Peter's going to leave him He's going to leave them. Peter's going to deny him. They need to love one another. Even before then, he's talking about how Judas will betray him. He had, it hasn't been the happiest pep talk of this upper room discourse to the point. Like, it's like, hey, just so you know, it's going like, like, to get real bad out there. Like, you're going to leave me. You're going to forget. I'm going to leave you. But, but in all of these things, he really is trying to bring comfort and he's going to start communicating why, why they need that comfort and how he is going to provide it. But in a moment, now think about this, in a moment where Jesus is speaking about his departure and his death is right around the corner, what does he do but he provides comfort to his disciples? Maybe in the one time the disciples should have enough emotional intelligence to go, maybe... Maybe I should be concerned about how Jesus is doing. He, he seems to not be well. He seems to be bothered, right? His, his heart is burdened. And yet, what does he do in verse 1? Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. And then he gives, in a sense, kind of why or how. Believe in God and believe also in me. And so he begins to speak about how he's going to Bring, up, bring his disciples to a place that he is preparing for them. So in all this speaking of departure and all this worry about what will be, he's trying to say, you're going to be okay. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have uh, told you that I'll go prepare a place for you? And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. That should be clear at this point. So he's saying, don't be bothered. We have a place for you. My father's home, there are many rooms. Many of you probably, even maybe if you grew up in church life, like remember that, that illustration, like I get my mansion. It sounds like, sounds like you get your, your apartment, right? It's like you get a room there. In God's house. You don't get your own house, right? Like you get to be with him. But these are all illustrative to say, we will be together. Don't worry, disciples. We will be together. Now, if you fast forward to the book of Revelation, you have right there toward the end, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Right? Like you actually, it pushes you to this, like God and man residing together. Living in a new heaven and a new earth together. And so Jesus says, it's, I'm leaving, but I'm not going to leave you, leave you. I'm preparing a place for you. And we, you will be brought there. Thomas, 
How do we know where you're going? How can we know the way? Because they've, of course, missed it. We've seen a lot of missing it go on to this point in this story. But how do, you, how do we know? How do you know? How do we follow you there? You've already said we can't go where you're going. How are we, gonna, how are we going to do this? And Jesus said, and he probably, you know, he's always gracious in his response. Jesus said, and this is the part of John 14, maybe we're more familiar with this phrase. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, or if you know me, depending on how you take that condition, if you know me, you know the Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And so he speaks about bringing his, that he's going to prepare a place for his disciples. His disciples go, how are we going to get to where you are? And he has this statement of, you get there through me. You get there through me. You get access to the Father through me. In a world, this is the challenge for today's disciple, in a world where exclusive claims about what is true are off-putting and offensive, to say to somebody, no, there is a way. There is a way. No one means no one. No one comes to the Father except through me. It doesn't mean through me. Like, like how, what does that work? Well, the way that it will be is through his work for us. Death, burial, resurrection, ascension. That without faith in the work of Jesus for us, our access to God is cut off. We don't have it. But Jesus' whole point is, 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 is since this kind of ringing, you should, you should know this. You should be tracking with what's going on here. And yet, of course, they don't. They miss it. But you'll hear, and you may even have these conversations, hey, just because I view God like this, and you view God like that, it doesn't mean that one of us is right. Can't these both be true? Can't these both be true? Well, here's the thing, though, is that if you actually look at Jesus' words and you hear them as, no one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus is exclusive. It's not me making some kind of extra claim that a Christian doesn't make. You just go, well, again, we're bound by what Jesus said. Jesus said, this is how it happens. This is how we find God. This is how we get access to God is through the work of Jesus. And if you remember those phrases, he has I am phrases kind of throughout, but I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, I am the way. Show us the way. And what does he say? I'm the way. And why is he the way? Well, it's that second idea. I am the truth. I communicate, am, I embody, communicate, am, and fully what is true. And he is the one who provides that life. Which then allows for the ability to make the exclusive claim, no one comes to the Father except through me. The problem, the problem is not with how we communicate these truths to, about, to the world sometimes. Sometimes you, we are communicating like, like punks and don't need to do that. But 
too often in our, in our evangelism or our sharing of Christ or talking, just talking to people about the Lord. Because sometimes I'd say evangelism, I'm like, oh man, that's real hard. I'm not an evangelist. I'm like, can you talk to people about God? Like, let's, let's just say that then. When we talk to people about God with an aim that they, they would hear you and they would really respond in faith. Okay? We kind of tricked you into evangelism there, but that's, let's just say we talk to people about God. So often we make it about us. How do people view what I'm saying? How do people view, did I say it the right way? And maybe if somebody doesn't believe or they don't like you or they reject what you're having to say or they just think it's, it's just hogwash, you, you go, oh gosh, right? You get all up in your feels about it. Without, when you do that, you're taking, you're really taking the, the locus of authority away from the Lord and putting it in you. That, that someone else's salvation is dependent upon your persuasiveness to convince them of something that is God's to convince them of. And so rather than say, I, I really hope I don't screw this up. I really hope I don't, I, I don't want to mess this up. I don't want to get this wrong. You know, no, this is really just about pointing people to what Jesus has done and pointing people to what Jesus has said and leaving that to be contended with. Now, you can do that graciously and not like a jerk, right? You can do things that will allow for the message to be rejected and not the messenger. Right? So you, there's a ways that you can speak with people. There's a heart you can have, a compassion you can have, an interest in them that you can have. But fundamentally, it is not about you. And how you talk to people about it. When Jesus goes, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me unless you share it poorly. Unless you communicate it badly. Unless, you know, you, you leave out a detail. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody about the Lord and then maybe you leave that conversation and you go, oh, shoot. I forgot to share this thing. Right? I, I, I should have said this better. I should have said it like that. Whenever I kind of debrief maybe conversation with folks and they tell me about how it went, there's always a list of things they wish they would have said. And you just kind of, I mean, I mean no matter, what if I just in that moment went, do you think God is disappointed with you? Like, do you, do you feel like he now needs to get the PR team out and, and be sure that like the, the divine social media channels are saying the things that you missed because you didn't say it? Like, do you, does God need that from you? Does he need that? No. He doesn't need a PR team. He doesn't need to try and correct the things that you say wrong. He doesn't need to correct it because he is the truth. And so it is one of the most freeing things. And I'll see it at times. I see this in my students. It's one of the most freeing things when they have this like this dawning and you almost see it where they go, oh my gosh. Like sharing Christ with people is actually not about me. I'm like, no, you're just, walk, you know, you're just walking into like whatever road God has put you on. That's all you're doing. And like, that really helps. I'm like, yeah, it absolutely helps. Why? Because it's Jesus that they would be accepting or receiving, not you. And so, yeah, so you point people to the things he has said. And I just really have a hard time with Christians being so exclusive. I think then you have a hard time with God. Like, I don't think you have a hard time with Christians as much as you have a hard time with God. And that's a different conversation. So what problems do you have with exclusivity? What problems do you have with things that, that are constantly true and have always been true? What's that issue? It's not what problem do you have with me, which is that's all smokescreen. And it's your flesh at times convincing you that if you say things the right way, somebody would have believed. Right? You go like, well, I just didn't say it. Had I had that conversation three years ago, we wouldn't be in this spot now. That is such a me-centered or you-centered or us-centered way of talking about the Lord Jesus. 
rather than realizing, if you want to know God, you really, if you want to get to God, you have to go through Jesus. There's always, if you travel a lot, then you know this joke, you know, it doesn't really matter if you're going to heaven or hell, you have to go through Atlanta. It's always like, you always have to find, like Atlanta's getting you there, and it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter how. It's a silly little goofy way, but we all kind of recognize in life, like, and you'll see this in people's hearts, man, maybe, maybe I've had it wrong. Maybe I've been thinking about it wrong. And when you see people who are starting to question the, their own way of how they have pursued life and their own little towers and idols that they build up and gone, maybe this isn't the case. You go, you know what? I know a great person that you should meet. <laughs> Let's talk about Jesus for a moment. So in that fundamental question that people really do ask for, help, help me find God. How do, I, how do I get to God? It's interesting that the, the answer from John 14 is through the work of the Son. Because remember, we're here in this upper room discourse, and Jesus is really foreshadowing everything that's about to happen. He's preparing them for everything that's going on. And so he doesn't make a claim in John 14, 5, or 6, I'm sorry, without also knowing what's going to come in the coming chapters. And so, how do we find God? How do we get to God through the work of Jesus? Jesus provides the access that we need. And it's interesting because one thing that is kind of common historically in faith systems is like this whole idea of like you got to really try really hard. You have to work really hard for it. You got to you, like you, like you, like you, it better you just better have a miserable experience while you try and find God. It, like you you got to put the work in. Then when you put the work in, you've arrived at some kind of like moment of enlightenment and you can feel better about yourself. And that's 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 the absolute opposite. Jesus puts the work in. Jesus suffers. Jesus dies. Jesus is raised. Jesus ascends. He comes down to us. And then we're like, oh, is that it? And then it's almost like, because we, I've used this word transactional, it's almost like you go, is there anything else here? Like, is there more to it? Is there more to how this works? Like, do, we, do, I, do I need to do something? Do I, like, I, this doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel fair. And grace isn't fair, and it's good for us that it isn't. So Jesus provides our access to the Father, that question, you know, our statement, help me find God. But then there's also this, like, help me know what God is like. I don't want to be in the dark with it, so help me know what God is like. Who is God? How do we know God? Well, it's through Jesus. But then you have Philip's question in verse 8, or a statement, which is a question, but like, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Like, like, it's really like, if I could just know this one thing, it would be plenty. Again, you hear that kind of fundamental human cry. This is enough. If you could show me God, it would be enough. It's at the heart of every human. We always want this. Could we precisely personally know who God is. Jesus, in this interaction, has a, a bit of a rebuke. That bit of the rebuke comes in verse 9, when he says, have I been with you so long and still you don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? 
Now, now you hear the wording there? Jesus, show us the Father and it will be enough. And then what does he say? Have I been with you so long that you still do not know me? How come that's his response? He doesn't say, have I been with you so long that you don't know this? It's not an impersonal statement there. That you don't know this truth or this idea. Have I been with you so long that you don't know me? Because God is thoroughly personal. And he says in that, if you have seen me, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How could you say that? How could you say, show us the Father? His point at this point is, you should, you should know that. And he speaks again to the unity of the Father and the Son. Now this, especially 14 into, into next week, they, they make our little tiny human brains. And I mean that. Even though we're cooler than like ants and stuff like that, even though the Proverbs are like, look at the ants. They don't, they don't cause stupid problems like you guys do. But even though we have like really brains that cannot understand God fully, there is this part where Jesus is replying, you should know this. But what gets hard is when we think about these relationships is he goes, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And that has to do with the fact that God is one. Though our comprehension of God, specifically in how he interacts for our salvation, is varied through Father, Son, and Spirit, and the work that they do. This is called, uh, in, in nerdily, you can write this down if you like taking notes, but the eternal relations of origin. Not origin, the writer, O-R-I-G-E-N, O-R-I-G-I-N, right? The eternal relations of origin. How are they Always, that they've always interacted as Father, Son, and Spirit in certain ways. But then as we realize what that means for our salvation, we recognize things differently. That Jesus is the way to the Father, but at the same time, he is our understanding of the Father. Because God is one. If God were two, then we could not have confidence that what we see in Jesus is what we would see in the Father. Because there would be two wills. There would be two ways of operating. So we are not, and this is something that other faces might, might get confused about, is, wait, are you polytheists? Are you tritheists? Like you have three gods that all kind of do the same thing? Like they're definitely on the same team, but are they three of them? You go, no, 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 no. If there were three, then Jesus couldn't make this claim. Show us the Father. He goes, no, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father because God is one. And we'll get to it next week. But one of the things about the Spirit, and I've said before, is the Spirit has a spotlight ministry. The Spirit illuminates our minds and hearts to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Which then means that if the Spirit draws attention to things about Jesus, the Spirit is drawing attention through Jesus to things about the Father. The Spirit helps us know God. And so in this world that wants to understand who God is, please let me know who God is. It, it almost feels... Like a cop-out to go, well, just look at Jesus. But that's actually the answer. Look at Jesus. Look at how he's taught. Look at how he's lived. Look at what he's spoken. And it's not just in the Gospels. but Look, look at what God has revealed. Inspired by his spirit in our scriptures. If you see that, then you see God. But at this point in time, Philip is still, there's this gap in his understanding. That gap really is filled in when the spirit comes. And the Spirit, because Jesus goes, the Spirit's going to bring to mind the things that I've said. And they're like, oh. 
So Jesus is the way we understand God. He's the way we access God, and he's the way we understand God. Those are two kind of human cries. We all have them in different ways. How do I, how do I, how do I find God? Through Jesus. How do I understand more about him? Through Jesus. Thirdly, and this is important for us too. Well, how do I live for God? How do I live for God? There is no, for me and for, if you just read the scriptures, there isn't a distinction in my head. Hear me here. Like, the one who knows things about God lives for God. The one who comprehends rightly things about God. Like, like we, you talk about it in, in, like, the epistle literature is, like, indicatives and imperatives. That there are statements that are indicated about God, truths that are spoken, that result in ways that we live for God, right? The imperatives, the commands. And you don't want to get that order wrong, but at the same time, they're so connected. They're so connected. That is not to say that in every day, in every moment, in every time, in every way, you are going to live perfectly for God. That, that, put that one aside. That's not the main concern. But from the truths that exist always come a way of living. And so knowing something about God isn't the full question. It isn't the full way of understanding and comprehending God, which he's going to get into next week for us, even though he's just going right into it with his disciples, because he's going to say, if you love me, you obey me. That's what he will begin to move into. I know you're for me if you do what I say. And that, again, will show us the connection between understanding things about God and following through in obedience to God. So it's an important question. All of us ask it in some kind of way. I want to know I'm living right or rightly. I want to know I'm doing the right thing. Well, first, that's going to come through knowing who God is. How to get to God, how to understand God, that comes through Jesus. And then there's this question, well, then how do I... How do I actually reflect him? How do I live for him? It's another question that this passage answers for us. That Jesus provides for us our ability to, we'll use the term glorify, but you could also just say live for or reflect the Father. Live for or reflect. And the reason I say it that way is because I think in our, in our world, when we think of glorify, we, we often just think of like things we do on Sundays, like we get together, we sing songs, uh, and, and like that's glorifying God. And it is. It is. But really, it's about reflecting Him in everything. That as we live for God, wherever He might put us, tomorrow at your office, when you have an opportunity to speak of Him or to serve, even when you don't want to, when you have that, you get to glorify God. You get to demonstrate something about God. When you speak in your community groups uh, this coming week, about this, even this passage, when you're speaking in your community groups about the Lord, you are glorifying God. Why? Because you're speaking about Him. You're using His Word and you're talking about it. You're trying to understand, what does this mean? And how do we live for God more fully based upon what we see right here and what God has revealed? And so how do we live for God? It's a fundamental question. Because, yeah, it's great that you can, I, I can know who He is. That's cool. And understand more about it by looking. But this isn't just a laboratory where we just kind of make some observations. Like I'm thinking in, my, in high school when you get your composition notebook and you have to write down your order of operations. That's math. But you know, how you went through your whole math, you know, like science lab and you had to turn it in. I always got bad grades because I hated those. 
Um, but this is our, like, it's not just that where you go, that was pretty cool, put it on the shelf, could you please give me a grade? Did I speak in a way, or did I check off the quiz right? Did I do the right things? There's this longing for us to live differently. To live differently. And I hear it when I'll speak with you guys. Who's this about? All of us. Not anyone. This is an amalgamation of every conversation over four years. All right? I wish I could. When that situation came up in my relationship again, it was like I, I knew what I should have done, and I didn't do it. I, I struggled here. I, 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 I'm just selfish in this relationship and in this environment, and I know what the Lord has spoken when I hear these types of conversations, there is that flesh and spirit battle. Like, I want to live differently for God. I want it to impact me and how I love and how I serve and how I care. And I really don't want to be so selfish. I don't want to, I want to get over myself and be as God would be. Now, what we get to see in verses 12 through 14 is Jesus uses one of his kind of phrases, truly, truly. Or maybe, maybe, you, maybe you are from the verily, verily days. Maybe you are a verily, verily person. But verily, verily, or truly, truly, or amen, amen, lego, which is like the Greek way. Like, like for sure, for sure, I say. Like all these kinds of things. But like verily might be your, your boat or truly. But when Jesus says this, he's, it's like a, hey, listen up. He's about to say something to you. Now, everything Jesus says we should listen to, but then he uses this construction when he's trying to be like, look, look, flashing lights, put it around there, right? If he could get a megaphone in that moment, he'd get the megaphone, he'd say it differently. And this is what he says in verse 12. I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Do you see the link right there between belief and life? Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. That you're not just learning something about God. In fact, this is something, if you were with us in the book of James, and we did that a couple years ago, James had, he had no patience for people who were like, oh no, it's just cool to know things about God. He'd be like, eh, can't do it, will not work, will not work. And he even uses this line, which is a little terrifying. You believe that there's one God. Good. Even demons believe that. I mean, in a sense, James, the whole thing about why a Christian should be different than a demon. Because it's not the demon's theology that's wrong. It's probably better than ours. Right? Like, so, so it's not a knowing thing that's wrong. It's the transforming that comes through the work of Jesus to save sinners. That's the difference. And so Jesus goes, if you believe in me, anyone who believes in me will do the works that I do. You see then the link. How do I get to the Father through Jesus? 
How do I understand more about the Father? You can almost even see that in your sanctification, your day-to-day walk, where you're continuing to read, you're continuing to discuss, you're continuing to... And as as your understanding of God grows, right, specifically through your understanding of Jesus, your understanding, you, you, you learn more. You learn more of Him and His goodness and His holiness and His grace and His care towards you, His heart for this world. You also begin to grow in this gross understanding of just how ugly you are without him. Both of these things happen as your understanding of God increases because your awareness of your own sin increases too. And as you, even just projected out 10 years from now, as you continue by God's grace to walk with him and his spirit continues to teach you things about him and you continue to grow and be challenged, all of those things, as that, as that continues in your life, You might go, man, I'm worse now than I was then. I doubt that is the case. But God in his grace is showing you more of you. The things that you couldn't bear 10 years ago, 5 years ago, 3 years ago, had they been brought up to you, they would have crushed you. But as your confidence in God has grown, your lack of confidence in yourself has as well. And you run from yourself and toward him. If you, whoever believes in me, will also do the works that I do. Now, in that ability to live for God, there is this statement right there at the end of 12. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. What are the greater works? And this is where we get a little too mathematical. Here's what I mean. Greater, like, literally, as in John, to the, like, Jesus took fish and loaves and fed thousands. Thousands. I don't, I don't know of a time in church history where that's happened. So is it like cooler works? Is it more powerful works? It, like what kind of works are we talking about here? What are the greater works? Because I'm telling you what, Jesus did some pretty impressive things. If we're, just, if we're just observing them, we go, I'm not sure I can duplicate those, Jesus. You read the book of Acts and you do see things. You see resurrection. You see transformation. You see Eutychus who fell asleep at church one night, fell out a window, and Paul's like, oh, he's fine. Gets up. And I'm like, oh, this is cool. And no one decided to critique Paul and how boring of a teacher he was that a dude fell asleep while he was preaching, fell out a window. Or Eutychus's parents who were like, hey, don't let your kids fall asleep by windows. Like there's all kinds of things that went wrong in that. But let's just go with the fact that he rose. That doesn't seem to be what Acts is pointing us to is that Paul's like, oh no, it's all good. Like that's seriously how confident he was with it. I don't know how he looked, you know, like I don't know how, how broken his body was. But whatever happened, Paul was like, We got this. And they move on, right? So that's pretty cool. But let's just poll the room, even in this room. There are more people in this room than there were disciples listening to what Jesus said right now, which is crazy. But I bet even if you look at Jesus' life, we couldn't come up with one millionth of what Jesus had done in power. We couldn't do it if we tried. So what are the greater works? Well... The greater works are the heralding of the finished message of God for our salvation throughout all the world. At this point in time, Jesus is in one space in Israel, preaching, teaching, and showing people the Father. But what will soon happen with the coming of the Spirit are the Christians sent 
first throughout the Mediterranean world and even now throughout the entire world, heralding the finished work of Jesus, which to that point was not finished. It was right there. And what is able to happen now is that the church can continue to proclaim the message of salvation and we get to see globally, day by day, the Lord adding to the numbers of people who are trusting in him and turning from themselves. It is not about us just doing cooler miracles, being more sensational. It's about heralding that finished work indwelt by his spirit so that others might believe. The message of Christ's work for us entirely. And that requires Jesus to ascend. I'm going to the Father. And embedded, because he's right to, about to teach it, embedded in him going to the Father is then the sending of the Spirit to empower these works to continue through his church until his return. Greater works. Spread out through the globe, heralding the gracious work of God to save sinners. We get to do that if, we, if, 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 if we're not careful, we make it all about the things where I, I'm not doing that, right? You're going to buy a whole bunch of bread when you get home and try to feed your neighborhood. Like, let's, just see, like, let's just see what happens. Let me keep trying to do that. We're missing it. Because to this point, it's been about understanding Jesus. Access to the Father. Understanding of the Father. Living for the Father. And his main concern at, right before his ascension, if you look in Matthew 28, or you look in Acts chapter 1, it's not, about, it's not about going and doing cool works all the time, but going and being witnesses, declaring, making disciples, speaking of what he's done, and teaching to obey. Those are the parting words Jesus leaves his disciples with. Not... Even in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, is what he says. Not and go buy more bread and fish because it's going to get real dope up in here. Like he doesn't say that. It's about speaking of him in power because of the Spirit so that people would turn and trust. And that requires our hearts to be aligned with what God is doing. So remember, access, understanding, and ability. There's a flow there that's important. And that ability comes through the constant aligning of our will with God's will, which won't come unless we continue to grow in our understanding of who God is, a growing understanding of who Jesus is. Or else, if we look at verses 13 and 14, we get real excited about the money we want or the vacations we want or the things that we want. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified, there's that word, in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now that sounds like a promise. It sounds like a promise. So what's the hang-up? Because... I got a list of prayers that have not been answered. It's long. Now, I'll keep praying for them. Is my end game that that list gets accomplished? 
Well, in order to consider this, we have to understand what it means to ask something in Jesus' name. So, in any locale, it doesn't matter how big or small it is, but your name carries some kind of authority. In our home, it really is for mom or for dad. If mom or dad go to the kids, they say, hey, dad needs you too, mom needs you too. There are a lot of people in this room called mom and dad. So, so it's not your authority, though, that is being pulled. It's, it's mom and dad in the house. And when that is spoken, it's not mom or mommy or madre or padre. It's not, we talked about this, Derek, right? It's not the words themselves that are being used. It is the authority of the person. And so if you came into a bank, and you said, by the authority of Hans Guger, I ask you to open up these, your vault, and give me everything in it. First, we're not friends anymore. Second, I hope you're in jail. Third, it will accomplish nothing. Why? Because I have no authority there. My name accomplishes nothing there to do anything for you. The one thing that I can do at a bank is go and say, I would like to see my account balance, please. And then I cry and go home. Like, that's what I do. And I don't even need to go to a bank for that. I just look at my phone app. Oh, well, yeah, there it is. Authority. When Jesus says, ask things in my name, we are asking it with his authority, which then must be in keeping with his character. We don't ask things like he's a genie. Where you go, well, you rub the lamp, you get three wishes, whatever they are, whatever you want. But that is often how we treat God. He says to ask him for things, and I'm going to ask him for things, and, and I expect him to give me them. But what does Jesus' half-brother, who got this message, what does Jesus' half-brother say? You have because you do not ask. He does say that. When you ask, you don't get because you ask with wrong motives that you might spend what you receive on your own pleasures. That's the limiter there. The limiter is the authority and name of Jesus, which then must align with the will of Jesus. Must align with the will of Jesus for God's purposes. So here are the three answers. I learned this in seminary. You pay big bucks. You, you, you learn something that you could have learned in a sermon. Three answers God will give to any prayer. Yes, no, or wait. Yes, no, or wait. And I was like, man, can I get a refund? Like that, like, that works, right? That'll preach, that works. You can say that anywhere. Yes, no, or maybe, right? Because there are times when we're asking things that have nothing to do with God's heart. And the Lord is right in his kindness and discipline to say, no. We don't really think no is an answer, do we? But no is an answer. You don't like the answer, but it's no. But the name is about the authority, and the authority means that we have to do it in keeping with the one whose name we speak on behalf of, or however you want to say that, because we're ambassadors. We have delegated authority from the Lord to speak of him. But dare we ever speak of him in ways that are inconsistent with who he is? Dare we ever go 
to our Father, through whom Jesus gave us access and asked for things just for us so we might spend what we get on our pleasures. And praise God that he is concerned about his glory and not our happiness so that he can look at that and go, that's stupid, Hans. You're not getting that. And I can go, yeah, you're kind of right there, aren't you? So here's one way that this actually helps me. Remember, access, understanding, and ability to glorify. Live for, reflect. Here's how that helps me, those words of Jesus. At times, I will force my prayers to have to explain to God why I think it aligns. Lord, here's why this request matters to me. Maybe, you know, we could do an easy one. The salvation of people in your life who don't know Jesus. Lord, I pray you'd save them. Because I can't save them. Only you can. Your spirit needs to move. And I would ask that you would give me an opportunity soon to speak with them about who Jesus is. Right, that kind of prayer where he go, that's, it seems to sync up. Right? Like, like it fits the box, but, but sometimes I'm going to ask myself as I'm praying to go, how does this align with who God is? And I'm saying this in the authority of Jesus. And those things spoken in his name, according to his will, he will do. So at times then, it is really about, as Jesus has taught us to pray, about persistence. We don't go, hey, that, I prayed that thing that one time. It seemed to be in Scripture. It didn't get answered. I'm out. Because that actually goes against how Jesus taught his disciples to pray, which is to keep praying and not lose heart. And at times, unanswered prayers for me are really a long lesson in God trying to teach me that I'm confused. And he's reminding me more of who he is, how he moves, how he cares. And he's teaching me endurance. Lord, here's, here's what I need. Here's what I would love to see. Here's what it seems to align with. I'll say it this way sometimes. This is a little pejorative, but like bring God's word back to him. Those are some of the best prayers you can pray. When you read it and you go, this is what I see, God. We, Jason and I were talking about that at D group this morning. I was like, man, Psalm 62, I think it was Psalm 62, 8. I was like, I don't like what it said because it said, pour out your heart before the Lord. Like the, the God's people are supposed to pour out their heart. And you look at that word, it means like, with this intense emotion, not just feels, but like an actual real life heartfelt concern. And I'm like, I'm kind of a robot and I don't, I don't do that. I don't, I don't have intense emotion, right? Like my last name's Googer. If that doesn't give it away, like it's like, I, yeah, my, my, I don't have a broad spectrum here. It's like, are you happy? I'm like, I'm, I'm totally amped. And like, it might just be like this eyebrow hair, just like it moved this way just a little bit. And you got to like kind of look for that as you talk to me. It's like, because the next day, like, it's down, and I'm like, I hate everything, the world's going to end. You just don't know. So I read that, and I go, Lord, there's something about your people who should be so aware of their need of you and your care for them that you are the best place to pour out our hearts. Why am I not doing that? Why am I not doing that? Why am I not pouring out my heart? Right? And then I just started, then you go, oh gosh, my two, you know, you start to think all through all these things. But right, when you are in God's word and you're reading it, that's the closest way to be praying God's will. 
So God, I see you say this, God. Help me understand how it works, what it means. You think God's like, I mean, when my kids say to me, Dad, you said. I'm like, well, crap, I did, didn't I? Right? And I'm not God, so he would never be caught like that. But I, I'm like, yeah, one, the moment that my children remind me of something that I said, I either have to follow through or explain why I'm a bad dad. I got two things I can do there. And that's not so with our Heavenly Father. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He doesn't double-cross us. He doesn't change his word. He doesn't change his meaning. He doesn't change his heart. That's consistent through and through. So if we have access to the Father through Jesus and understanding of who the Father is as we grow in Christ-likeness, then we will also have a growing ability to glorify our Heavenly Father because we are speaking and praying and moving in accordance with what his people would do. It is a lifelong journey. And I'd even argue that it's an eternity-long journey because we continue as people who are eternal, and I say eternal in one direction, right? That God's people, we, we, we showed up on the, on the map of chronology at one point in time and, and we get to keep going in Christ. We get all of eternity to comprehend or grow in our comprehension of an always eternal, always loving, always gracious God. And so we get to begin that now. And there will come a day, and I long for it, when my prayers and my worship and my living always reflect God. But until then, it doesn't stop me one bit from running to the Lord Jesus so I can be with God, understand God, and live for God. Because that's what he has us here to do.